as we begin, let's forthrightly recognize that scriptural reliability isn't verified simply because there are hundreds of millions of people around the world who believe that the scripture is the inspired word of God, right? Just because maybe a billion and a half people believe it's the inspired word of God doesn't make it the truth, and it doesn't make it God's word. Uh, the truth of the scripture can only be verified by two things. Number one, historical facts. And number two, the reality of the word lived out in people's lives. And so tonight, we'll deal with the first of this, these issues, the historical facts. This information is available to any person who's actually interested in finding out the truth. It's not smoke and mirrors or hearsay or hopeful mysticism. The foundation of Christianity is built upon historical reality. So let's jump in, get your notes. Uh, the uh, link is down there if you, want, if you don't have them yet. Uh, and here we go. Here's your first blanks. Fact number one. We're going to work through five facts uh, about the history and historicity of Scripture. Fact number one. The Old Testament is stunningly accurate. Since the Bible makes many explicit statements about history, large portions of it can be tested through the science of archaeology. And last week we started unpacking the arguments that have been leveled against the book of Daniel. And we found that after repeated assertions that Daniel is inaccurate, then subsequently archaeological findings emerged that demolished the arguments and verified Daniel's exquisite accuracy. Go back last week if you haven't seen it and look at Ashpenaz and look at the chief of the eunuchs and look at Darius the Mede and look at Belshazzar king of Babylon, these amazing finds. Um, they, and they reverse the scholar's uh, previous criticism of the text. And last week, I teased you with some of the remarkable historical de details. Uh, each of the officials that I just mentioned were attacked by scholars uh, only to be spectacularly shown to be absolutely accurate with recent archaeological finds. No part of scripture is as remarkable in its details and its predictions of the future, though, than Daniel chapter 11. This section is so incredible that we could spend weeks on it. In fact, there are 135 specific events and people that are predicted and uh, prophesied uh, and have come about uh, in Daniel chapter 11. So I'll just tantalize you with a handful of Daniel 11's prophecies. Now, I'm giving you these details so that you can see the exquisite precision of the prophecies, and so you can understand why those who don't believe in a sovereign God are so intimidated by the text of Daniel and so want it to not be real. They realize that if Daniel wrote this in advance, then God is God, and their progressive anti-prophetic theories collapse completely, and they, their lies are, are, are laid bare by the sheer weight of the amazing evidence. So, uh, Daniel chapter 11, um, I hope you've had time to get there. Let's start with the first two verses. And you can see here I'm being, uh, verse 1 and 2, letter A, verse 1 and 2, I'm being uh, merciful, letting you just write the verses in uh, and not having to write in all the deta historical details. Look at verse 1. And in the first year of Darius the Mede, I arose to an encouragement, be an encouragement and a protection for him. And now I will tell you the truth. truth. Behold, three more kings are going to arise in Persia. Then a fourth will gain far more riches than all of them. As soon as he becomes strong through his riches, he will arouse the whole empire against 
the realm of Greece. This two verses in itself is gigantically pregnant with amazing precise historical accuracy. Um, and as you can see, the four kings that are mentioned here are Cambyses, Pseudosmyrtus, Darius uh, I, and Xerxes I, or Ahasuerus I. Look at verse 3 with me. And a mighty king will arise, and he will rule with great authority and do as he pleases. But as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom will be broken up and parceled out toward the four points of the compass, though not of his own descendants. This is really remarkable. Not his own descendants. So this is not a kingly lineage of descendants, exactly as we'll see what happened. Nor according to his authority, which he wielded, for his sovereignty will be uprooted and given to others besides them. So letter B is verse 3 and 4. Write it in. And this is Alexander's greatness, right? His death as soon as he reaches the peak of his power and the splitting of his kingdom among his four generals. And by the way, the four generals, none of those were his progeny, exactly as Daniel had predicted. By the way, you want to know how detailed this is. The south was Egypt in the split up. The north was Syria. The east was Thrace. And the west was Macedonia and the environments around Macedonia. Letter C. Here's your blank. We're going to look at verse 5. Ready? Verse 5. Then the king of the south will grow strong along with one of his princes who will gain ascendancy over him and obtain dominion. His domain will be a great dominion indeed. This is Ptolemy I and Seleucus I. Next blank, write in verse 6. D is verse 6. And after some years, they will form an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south, which by the way was Egypt, will, will come to the king of the north, Syria, to carry out a peaceful arrangement, but she will not retain her position of power, nor will he remain in his power. But she will be given up, along with those who brought her in, and the one who sired her, as well as he who supported her in those times. This is amazing, absolutely remarkable. This is Ptolemy I, excuse me, Ptolemy II, as you can see, Antiochus II, Bernice is the woman, and Laodicea. All right, letter E, here's your blank, 11, verses 7 and 8. Look at verse 7. But one of the descendants of her line will arise in his place, and he will come against their army and enter the fortress of the king of the north, and he will deal with them and, and display great strength. Verse 8, and also their gods and their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold he will make into a cap take into captivity into Egypt, right? He's the king of the south, and he on his part, will refrain from attacking the king of the north for some years. So this is Ptolemy III. Okay, letter F, ready? Write it in, verses 9 through 16. And you can see we'll start skipping. We're not going to do all 135, not even close. But look at verse 9. Then the latter will enter the realm of the king of the south, but it will return to his own land. And his sons will mobilize and assemble a multitude of great forces, and one of them will keep on coming and overflow and pass through that he may again wage war up to his very fortress. By the way, you can literally take your Bible and you can go to the British Museum where the most concentrated grouping of all of this history and archaeology is on the planet by far. And you can literally take your text and go through the different parts of the British Museum and literally see this history unfold exactly 
as in Daniel. Really remarkable. Verse 11, and the king of the south will be enraged and go forth and fight with the king of the north. Then the latter will raise a great multitude, but that multitude will be given into the hand of the former. When the multitude is carried away, his heart will be lifted up and he will cause tens of thousands to fall, exactly as it had happened in history. Yet he will not prevail. For the king of the north will again raise a greater multitude than the former, just like we see in history and archaeology. And after an interval of some years, he will press on with a great army and much equipment. Now in those times, many will rise against the king of the south. The violent ones among your people will also lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they will fall down. Then the king of the north will come cast up a siege mound and capture a well-fortified city, and the forces of the south will not stand their ground, not even their choicest troops, for there will no longer be strength to stand. Verse 16, but he who comes against him will do as he pleases, and no one will be able to withstand him. He will also stay for a time in the beautiful land, guess where? Israel, <laughs> in the beautiful land, with destruction in his hand. So letter F, notice, this is Seleucus III, Antiochus III, and a host of others. You saw how much detail there was in there. I didn't even take the time to write in the six or seven or eight or nine names of kings and their progeny there. Um, so letter G, ready? Verse 17 is your blank. Verse 17, letter D, excuse me, letter G. And he will set his face to come with power of his whole kingdom, bringing with him a proposal of peace with him who will put into effect. And he will also give him the daughter of women to ruin it. By the way, you have probably seen this woman in old movies. <laughs> but she will not take a stand for him or be on his side. You ready for this? This is Ptolemy V and Cleopatra, right? A really one of the rare famous names from this time of history. This is Cleopatra's prophecy by Daniel. And we're going to see how we know proven that it was uh, in advance. Uh, look at now uh, verse 20. Verse 20, that's your next blank. H is 20. Then in his place, one will rise who will send an oppressor through the jewel of his kingdom. Yet within a few days, he will be shattered, though neither in anger nor in battle. This is Seleucus IV and Heliodorus. I, ready, write in verse 21, verse 21, and in his place a despicable person will arise on whom the honor of kingship has not been conferred. But he will come in a time of tranquility and seize the kingdom by intrigue. This is just remarkable. All packed into this, ready, is look at Seleucus IV, Demetrius, baby Antiochus, Antiochus IV Epiphanes, as opposed to, uh, to uh, the, the, who, who you may have often heard of, the earlier ones, and Andronicus. Now skip down to verse 27. As for both kings, verse 27, that's your blank, by the way, for J, verse 27. As for both kings, their hearts will be intent on evil, and they will speak lies to each other at the same table. You know what's amazing is? That's what world leaders do, right? Some things never change. As for both kings, their hearts will be intent on evil, and they will speak lies to each other at the same table, but it will not succeed, for the end is still to come at the appointed time. 
So here is Antiochus Epiphanes and Ptolemy V. Those are the two kings lying to each other at the table and the, the one having taken it by intrigue, Antiochus Epiphanes, he was not due to be king. All of this just amazing, masterful, specific detail. And then K, write it in, uh, verses 29 through 33. 29 through 33. Look with me at verse 29. At the appointed time, he will return and come into the south, but at the last time, it will not turn out the way it did before. The ships of Kittim will come against him. Therefore, he will be disheartened and will return and become enraged at the holy covenant and take action. So this is now Antiochus Epiphanes going against the Jews. So he will come back and show regard for those who forsake the holy covenant. And forces from him will arise and desecrate the sanctuary fortress and do away. So notice, now you're talking about the temple. And do away with the regular sacrifice, and they will set up the abomination of desolation. Think about that. This is the second part of Daniel that Jesus was referring, excuse me, yes, that Jesus was referring to in his great Olivet Discourse of Matthew 24. Both chapter 9 and chapter 11 talks about the abomination of desolation where the temple is desecrated and, uh, and the uh, Holy of Holies is desecrated by the Antiochus Epiphanes in the past. That was the near, this is a near far prophecy. And of course, aiming in the future toward uh, the, the actual Antichrist himself. So it's a foreshadowing. Verse 33, And those who have insight among the people will give understanding to the many, yet they will fall by the sword, by flame, by captivity, and by plunder for many days. So you can see here in your notes, the horrendous desecration of the temple and the persecution of the Hebrews by Antiochus Epiphanes, and a clear prophetic foreshadowing of the Antichrist. And when we get to the Revelation, you'll see that chapter 11, 12, and 13, even 14, incredible concentrated prophecy here that tells us exactly what happens at the midpoint of the last seven years when uh, the abomination of desecration, uh, desolation occurs. Um, so these examples are merely a handful of the immense volume of evidence repeatedly showing Daniel and gigantic parts of the Old Testament. Obviously, we could go to hundreds of places all over the Old Testament, and it, they're found to be incredibly accurate. So look again at renowned archaeologist Donald Wiseman's statement that we saw last week. It's so pertinent here, and uh, there's blanks in, the, in it here, but read with me. The archaeology of the Bible lands have gradually grown until today. There are more than 25,000 sites within this region dating back to biblical times. There are thousands of archaeological confirmations of the Bible, and it is noteworthy that no archaeological finding has ever been made that contradicts the history of the Bible. Isn't that amazing? But of course... Many people have asked the question of whether the hyper-accurate section of Daniel might have been written after the events happened, right? How could Daniel have written this? Well, one possibility is Daniel is actually pseudo-Daniel, and after it's all written, this clever author makes it, uh, does all this historical writing, and he puts it in this, these kind of couched symbolic uh, uh, setting so forth, and then he goes and hides it and says he discovered an ancient manuscript and he, and he fakes the whole thing, right? Um, and, and how can we prove that that didn't happen? And in fact, all of higher criticism, and this is an important term for you to understand, higher criticism, 
<laughs> you ready for this? Lower criticism is actually dealing with the texts. Higher criticism is things like form criticism, like we'll talk about tonight, redaction criticism, literary criticism, uh, those kind of things. Um, and, and that's been so popular in progressive theological circles. But it is built completely on the assumption that prophecy was written after it happened. So that's why we need to establish fact number two. Ready? Here's your blank. Fact number two. The Old Testament wasn't rewritten after the fact to make it match future events and falsely appear to make predictions. Let me read that again. The Old Testament wasn't rewritten after the fact to make it match future events that falsely appear to make predictions. Right? That's the, the whole Old Testament higher criticism. You'll see how it got exploded, but that's how it was based. And, and we're going to see that there's actual archaeological proof of the fact for the huge portions of the Old Testament. It wasn't rewritten after the fact to make it look like it matched. Um, but for the moment, I want to take on just one of the most persistent false claims against the Old Testament, even though it was dealt a fatal blow over 70 years ago. While this blow was relevant for the entire Old Testament, for brevity tonight, we'll simply deal with the scripture that foretold the coming of the Jewish Messiah. And as you know, there's most scholars believe over 330 specific Old Testament prophecies that specifically, so like 30 pieces of silver, right? Like had to be, he had to become the curse, so he had to die on a tree, right? So he couldn't be beheaded. He had to be crucified just over and over and over. Many, many hundreds of them, okay? Uh, and for many centuries, it's been apparent that there are only two possible explanations for these hundreds of messianic prophecies in the Old Testament because they so perfectly match the life of Jesus. How could they have predicted they were going to gamble for his clothes? I mean, it's just a stunning, right? There's a perfect match. So there's two possibilities for what could have happened. Here's possibility number one, and your, uh, there's your blanks. God knows the future and was able to perfectly foretell the future through his prophets, right? That's possibility number one, is there is true prophecy, and the word is God's word, and he knows it all flawlessly. Or, possibility number two, something's fishy about the Old Testament, or the New Testament, or both. And they were manipulated to match each other, right? The Old Testament was rewritten to look like Jesus of Nazareth, and then it looked like he was prophesied, but he actually wasn't. That's, his, that's higher criticism. So in the 19th century, progressive theologians proposed that the Old Testament was altered after Jesus let, uh, lived to make it look like it was foretold, uh, his life was foretold. They postulated that the Old Testament was retrospectively manipulated to perpetrate a scam. And at that time of the establishment of this theory, the oldest available manuscripts of the Old Testament text were copied somewhere around 70 AD. So think about this. These are Old Testament texts. The autograph of Isaiah was somewhere around 700 BC when Isaiah wrote it, okay? Moses writing sometime around 1450 BC. But at the time that higher criticism of the Old Testament really formed in the 19th century, uh, the oldest copied manuscripts that were, that were uh, available at that time had been copied around 700 AD, long after Jesus had lived. 
right? Um, and so this allowed the theory to gain support in academic theological series. And let me show this graphically on the board. And you have this, um, you have this in, your, in your notes there. Um, but just so we, we're tracking here, um, notice um, Old Testament criticism. Um, and, and notice what was said. Here it is when it was starting to form in the 19th century into the early 20th century. Here's Jesus' life, A.D. 32, right? And then they said, well, hey, all they had to do was rewrite the Old Testament manuscripts and make it look like Jesus. Bingo! Looks like you got prophecy. But in fact, they were doing it after the fact. And then the copies, the earliest copies, were copied around 700 A.D. Okay, so this formative period could logically have actually happened. It was plausible at that time, right? And then you go into the 19th century when you start having the Old Testament uh, uh, theologians starting to create this higher criticism, and it, they said, hey, no problem, there were seven, almost 700 years, 650 years for this to be rewritten and to make it look like Jesus had been prophesied in the Old Testament. And bingo, Christianity has their Messiah by, by doctoring, if you will, the Old Testament texts. Um, now, this mistaken scholarship came to a screeching halt. In one fell swoop, this entire school of thought was completely destroyed in 1947. And how did this happen? I'll answer with a key concept. Here's your blank. Write it in. The discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls proved that the entire Old Testament was written no later than, you ready for your blanks? No later than 300 years before Jesus lived. And what does this mean? The Old Testament is an astonishing testimony of the life of Jesus of Nazareth, and archaeological science has proven that it was written centuries before he was born. The Dead Sea Scrolls were the final blow to the higher critical theories of the Old Testament. The only teachers who continue to subscribe to these theories are at best ill-informed, and at worst, they're liars perpetrating a lie. So notice, Daniel chapter 11 couldn't have been written any later than 300 BC, and yet huge portions of what we read tonight happened long after 300 BC. Daniel actually prophesied Cleopatra. Think of it that way. So let me tell you the amazing story of the Dead Sea Scrolls. God, of course, knows all about the attack by the scholars to discredit his word and his son. But never forget who's in control. Just when the wholesale sellout of Scripture was in full swing in some seminaries and churches around the world during the last century, God, by his sovereignty, had a plan to show how foolish the wisdom of the world really is. In 1947, God sent a goat to stray out of his flock and into an obscure cave near the shore of the Dead Sea at the ancient site called Qumran. A small Bedouin shepherd boy followed the goat, and in the cave he found some unimpressive clay jars that were hardly worth a second thought. <laughs> but inside, they contained the greatest of all treasures and the ammunition to destroy the attack by the liberal ideologues who call themselves scholars. The boy had discovered the library of the ancient Essenes and con that contained every book of the Old Testament except the book of Esther. That's right, 38 
out of 39 Old Testament books. And by the way, perfectly preserved by God's sovereign hand, were ready eight copies of the book of Daniel. Count them, eight. Don't you love God sitting on the throne, chuckling to himself while all these scholars are trying to take out Daniel? And there it is, eight copies of Daniel. And when they did the dating of the Old Testament manuscripts, it was established that they could not have been written any later than 300 B.C. Look at that. The copies then were only 700 A.D., most ancient. Now you're all the way back 300 plus years before Jesus was crucified. Absolutely amazing. So since the theories, now notice about this. Notice, notice what happens. The Dead Sea Scrolls made the trumped-up stories of Old Testament forgeries rewritten in the first seven centuries A.D. a totally untenable theory. In fact, those who have tried to disprove God's sovereign foreknowledge of history are still reeling from this blow nearly three-quarters of a century later. Despite their desperate attempts to answer this problem, the problem of the Dead Sea Scrolls, it's absolutely insurmountable. And so they remain silent pathetically confused, dumbfounded before the God of the universe, and the best attempt they can muster in response to this simple, is to simply lie about the dating of the books. They still, in some seminaries, believe it or not, some theologians are still teaching a mid-2nd century, 165-ish B.C., pseudo-Daniel, writing the book of Daniel, even though they know it couldn't have been written after 300 BC. So since the theories that would discredit the Old Testament have been demolished, they literally, the Dead Sea Scrolls brought them crumbling to the ground. Guess what they attacked next? And this leads to fact number three. Ready? Here's your blank. The New Testament is stunningly accurate. It's, of course, no surprise that the scholars turned their sights on the New Testament because no longer could they say the Old Testament had been played with? However, the momentum of the textual and archaeological science has grown so great that even progressive theologians have been forced to concede that huge portions of the New Testament, like, for instance, last week we dealt with Luke-Acts, right, are spectacularly precise. Maybe that was the week before, but sometime in the last two weeks. Since we covered the textual science of Acts in detail and the New Testament in general, I'll just remind us of a few of the overarching statements from the people who really know their stuff, real New Testament scholars. Sir William Ramsey is regarded as one of the greatest archaeologists who ever lived. And listen to his humorous assessment of the New Testament critics. It's in your, it's in your notes. Look at this. The irony of the situation is that today, the professional historians, because he's an archaeologist and a historian, the professional historians accept the historicity of the New Testament. It is the theologians who reject, it is ironic, isn't it? The theologians who reject the historical accuracy of the New Testament based solely upon their philosophical presuppositions. They completely ignore the archaeology. The bottom line is, is if you don't want God to be God, you'll set aside every single fact and truth for God not to be God. And then, of course, world-class New Testament scholar F.F. Bruce said it this way, look at this, repeatedly, Luke has been suspected of inaccuracy. 
and repeatedly the accuracy of the text has been vindicated by inscriptional evidence, right? They find more ancient texts and manuscripts, and it's like, whoa, there it is. It's exactly right. It is thus legitimate to say that archaeology has confirmed the New Testament record. Fact number four. The New Testament wasn't written generations after Christ to fit the religious interests of the church. This, by the way, is a huge part of modern criticism, that the New Testament was formed, we'll see what this means, formed after Christ by the church forming it into the Jesus they wanted him to be. And I need to spend a bit of time on a theological movement called higher criticism that I've mentioned before, and one of its theories called form criticism. You'll see why it's called form criticism in a, in a minute. And the form critics teach that the Gospels were composed of various stories that were enhanced and embellished and then written down generation, generations, many generations after Christ lived. They teach that there were more than 30 Gospels, as they call them, that were circulated in the early church and that these Gospels all simultaneously competed for acceptance of being the story of the real Jesus, right? That all, way, way back, they were making up this Jesus, and there were all kinds of different voices speaking into who the real Jesus was. So here's uh, your blank. Form criticism's basic tenet is this. The stories that formed the New Testament were first century eyewitness reports, but were legends made up. Excuse me, let me say that again. The stories that formed the New Testament weren't first century eyewitness reports but were legends made up more than a hundred years after Jesus of Nazareth died. You got that? These aren't real eyewitness reports like it sounds like the four Gospels say they are. They actually were all doctored and made up more than a century after Jesus was gone. And by dating the Gospels as they do, they, they question their accuracy. They say that over many decades, the myths about Jesus grew into what uh, we have in the New Testament today. So basically, they believe that, G that, that Jesus was made into a superhero by the church growing the Gospels into what they look like today. He never walked on water. The church just thought, wow, what a great way to make him look like he's God, right? That's the concept of higher criticism and especially form criticism. So tonight, we're going to see the arguments that were viable in the early 20th century have been invalidated by recent archaeology. So let's work on the problems with the scholarship of form criticism. There are a whole bunch of holes in form criticism, but this evening I'm just going to deal with two of them. Here's your first blank. First, we're going to deal with the literary problems with form criticism. The literary problems. Listen to great, renowned historian Will Durant. Right? Will Durant. Historian Will Durant, who has spent his life analyzing records of antiquity, says the literary evidence indicates historical authentic, uh, authenticity regarding the New Testament. Listen to what he says. He starts by talking about the evangelists meeting the writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right? The evangelists, the four original gospel writers. Despite the prejudices and three theological preconceptions of the evangelists, in other words, he's saying they believed in Jesus, right? So they believed this stuff. But despite that theological preconception and prejudice, they record many incidents that mere inventors would have concealed. And now listen to his list. This is brilliant. 
the competition of the apostles for high places in the kingdom, their, f- their flight after Jesus' arrest, Peter's denial, the failure of Christ to work miracles in Galilee, the references of some auditors to his possible insanity, his early uncertainty as to his mission, his confession of ignorance as to the future, his moments of bitterness, his despairing cry on the cross. No one reading these scenes can doubt the reality of the figure behind them. That a few simple men should in one generation have invented so powerful and appealing of a personality, so lofty of an ethic, and so inspiring of a vision of human brotherhood would be a miracle far more incredible than any miracle recorded in the Gospels. See what, see what Durant is saying? He's literally saying, for this to have come by fable, this lofty, incredible story, is absolutely impossible. It is more miraculous than this. So notice, after two centuries of higher criticism, the outlines of the life, character, and teaching of Christ remain clear, and they constitute the most fascinating feature in the history of Western civilization. Wow, amazing statement from such an incredible historical scholar. Okay, so um, C.S. Lewis, of course, is renowned, right? He was a renowned Oxford professor. He's one of the greatest literary scholars of all time, and he dealt with this issue decisively. He effectively debunked form criticism on the basis of its poor literary scholarship. I love this. Listen to C.S. Lewis talking about the form critics, these theologians who are saying that the scripture was formed and put together the way it is rather than than, uh, eyewitness. Um, Here he is. First, then, whatever these theologians may be as biblical critics, I distrust them as critics. (laughs) They seem to me to lack literary judgment They are imperceptible and unperceptive about the very quality of the text that they are reading. And then he goes on, I love this, referring to the Gospel of John, Lewis goes on this way. I have been reading poems, romances, vision literature, legends, and myths all my life, because they're saying, of course, that these are myths, these are legends. I've been reading them all my life. I know what they are like. I know that not one of them is like the Gospel of John. These critics ask me to believe that they can read between the lines. (laughs) I love it. Listen to this. The evidence is that they're obviously unable to actually read the lines themselves. (laughs) They claim to see fern seeds, and yet they can't see an elephant 10 yards away in broad daylight. So, amazing. Um, so, so here's the, that's the literary hole in the, in the form, critics, uh, uh, form criticism. But here's the second big hole in the theory. Write it in. The archaeological problems with form criticism. And this is really, this is fun stuff. When form criticism was established in the early 20th century, the archaeology of the ancient manuscripts allowed them the luxury of believe, believing that the New Testament texts were late copies. Right? Back then... It was still 700 A.D. around those, ti- that, those times, uh, maybe a little bit earlier by then. Um, so there was still plenty of time for all of this formation of the four Gospels to actually be fought about and, 
uh, and made and so forth. Um, and they, they, so they said these were not eyewitnesses written in the first century. So let me show you graphically what the manuscript, uh, manuscript evidence was available in the 20th century. Uh, let's see. Here I, I've got it right here. Um, so notice, this is mid-20th century manuscripts with what they had available. And notice, the, this line is the New Testament copies. These are actual texts of the New Testament in Greek, right? And these are the other ancient Gospels, right? These are the competing other 26 or so Gospels, okay? And when this when, uh, form criticism started, notice the most ancient manuscripts of the New Testament at that time were only back to around 200 AD. There were little pieces here and there that got maybe to 180 AD. And then the other Gospels were you know, a little bit behind, 200 AD and later. But these were fairly close. And so let me, um, let me write, help you write your blank in there. So notice there's a gap between the life of Jesus. Jesus, so this is a gap between Jesus and 32 AD. And when the manuscripts, uh, the oldest manuscripts that they had, around 200-ish then, okay? And so notice, this is where the formation, thus form criticism. Formation. This is the gap where the forming of the Gospels into what they are today were made by telling all these myths and legends and finally deciding what the plan was going to be and putting it together and making it look like they were eyewitnesses See, and notice this gap was very large. You're talking from Christ. This was multiple, multiple generations after. And so there was time potentially for those manuscripts to have been toyed with, if you will. So let's look at how well uh, form criticism is holding up to modern New Testament scholarship. Because see, the last seven decades have led to a staggering number of the texts being uncovered. <laughs> Listen to this number. There are over 30,000 copies of the ancient New Testament manuscripts that have now been found. These have bridged the gap that used to exist between the time of Jesus and the end of the second century. British New Testament scholar John A.T. Robinson, by the, way, by the way, himself a agnostic and a skeptic, okay? But enormously uh, famous uh, New Testament scholar. He now believes that the whole of the New Testament was written before the fall of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. Think of that. That within the generation of the eyewitnesses who saw Jesus, right? Look at uh, the quote here from William F. Albright. He's recognized as one of the, the world's great archaeologists. He wrote this. It's in your, it's in your uh, text. We can say emphatically that there is no longer any solid basis for dating any book of the New Testament after 80 AD. This is more than two full generations before the date given by the radical critics. In fact, the completion date for all the books of the New Testament was probably sometime between 50 and 75 AD. There is strong evidence that the formative period was no more than 17 to 20 years in length, possibly, meaning the formative period, meaning since Jesus had died, 17 to 20 years. And look at this. And it's possible as little as seven to ten years for an Aramaic or Hebrew version of the Gospel of Matthew. So, this is amazing. Now you're ready to fill in your blanks, too, on this one. So, these are the manuscripts, more than 30,000 of them available today. 
Look at this. What has happened to the dating of the other Gospels? Almost all of them are much, much, much later than 200 AD. But the earliest ones are at 200 AD. But notice what has happened now with the New Testament manuscripts. So just take your, take your pen and start Xing this in. And it makes it all the way to certainly earlier than 75. And some scholars believe as early as 40 AD. Now look at the discrepancy that happens. Look what happened to the gap that the critics used to say, well, everything could have been doctored. These weren't eyewitnesses. Oh, yes, they were. These were eyewitnesses and the children of eyewitnesses and the relatives and the friends of eyewitnesses. These were 500 people who witnessed the resurrection all at one time, witnesses. Absolutely remarkable. Listen to Albright again. It's, this is in your, uh, in your text also. Only scholars who lack historical understanding can spin such a web of speculation as to that which the form critics have surrounded the gospel tradition. The formative period is too short to permit any appreciable corruption of the essential content and even the specific wording of the sayings of Jesus. All radical schools in New Testament criticism that have existed in the past or which exist today, listen to this slam, are pre-archaeological, meaning before the archaeology really came and filled it in. They are pre-archaeological, built out of thin air, and are antiquated. They've been exploded by the modern science. And Sir Fred Frederick Kenyon is the second to none in authority regarding ancient manuscripts. Listen to his bold conclusion. Here it is, also in your notes. The interval between the dates of the original composition and the earliest extant evidence becomes so small as to be, in fact, negligible. And that meaning, from the death of Christ until the existence, the emergence of the early manuscripts of the Gospels, is so small as to be negligible. What an amazing statement. Ready? And the last foundation for any doubt that the scriptures have come down to us substantially as they were written has now been removed. Both the authenticity and the integrity of the books of the New Testament may be regarded as finally established. Now here's the bottom line. Form criticism is defunct, right? It's defunct as a possible explanation for the formation of the New Testament. To be a form critic today, you have to either completely ignore the facts, the science, and the text, or you have to be a liar with your own agenda. Fact number five, here's your blank, fact number five. The allegations leveled at the New Testament are actually true of the competing documents. I love this reversal by our God. The allegations leveled at the New Testament are actually true of the competing documents. And this leads us to a bunch of books and documentaries that claim to have discovered the real historical Jesus. Let me give you a few of them. The whole Holy Blood, Holy Grail entices readers into a web of speculation regarding Mary Magdalene as the wife of Jesus, and they had seven children together. Six children, excuse me. The list goes on and on. Jesus the Magician, the First Coming, Jesus the Evidence, the mystery of Jesus, did he ever exist? 
Jesus the Pharisee, and of course, the latest and most famous, the Da Vinci Code. But here's the truth. The last seven decades of archaeology and the discovery of thousands of biblical manuscripts have devastated the basis for all of the popular renderings of the real Jesus that they've now discovered. The scholars who put these forward are pre-archaeological in the words of the actual archaeologists. Here's their problem. Archaeology has proven that the New Testament books were written simultaneous with hundreds of living eyewitnesses who would have cried foul if they were ma making up myths, right? They would have said, no, nobody was there to see Jesus alive. Nobody saw Jesus alive. All of these, all of these uh, uh, would have said, no, no way, because they were written while the people who saw Jesus were alive. They would say, no, there was no crippled man that was touched by Jesus. There were no blind, deaf people. There were no resurrections of people. And so, here's the truth. Um, this, the, the, uh, the, there are now at least two nails in the coffin, right? Here's nail number one, write it in. The New Testament was written during the lifetime of the eyewitnesses to the events, while all competing descriptions were written more than a century after the events. Look at uh, in your notes. This now becomes an incredibly important archaeological factual graph. Notice, that's many, many generations after Jesus lived, and these, the autographs, now even the copies uh, and the parchments of the four Gospels are all the way in here very soon after Jesus had lived. So every one of the discoveries of the historical Jesus were actually developed at least a century after Jesus died. Now remember, modern textual scholars agree that the four Gospels were completed no later than 70 AD, right? So 37 years after Jesus died. And so that is within the generation that saw the risen Christ with their own eyes. And imagine the number of children that lived and grandchildren who had talked to grandma and grandpa about seeing the actual Jesus alive. But compare this to the stories about Jesus that show up on documents written way after 150 AD. Their accuracy is suspect because they're so far removed from the actual events. So let me give you just one example of the false scholarship that's going on today. It's the Gospel of Judas, one of the 26 Gnostic Gospels that I told you about before. In 2006, the carbon dating was done for the newly discovered Gospel of Jesus, uh, Judas, excuse me, Gospel of Judas. There was a huge amount of hoopla in the press over this event, and when the dating was announced at the press conference, here's what they said. This is so such a clever lie. I want you to write in the press release. Write it in. Here's your blank. The carbon dating has verified and validated that the gospel of Judas is indeed an authentically ancient manuscript. Ooh. And all the newspapers and all the, all the scholars, they fawned over this. It's an authentically ancient manuscript. So the press went wild. They said that this brings into question the validity of the classic four Gospels. But the implications about this text that were announced were no more a threat to the integrity of the New Testament Gospels than a modern-day spy novel is. Here's why. Here's your blank. Write it in. 
You ready for the actual date of the gospel of Judas? Remember, remember, ooh, this brings into question all four gospels, by the way, now, which we have pieces of dating back to almost probably 40 AD. Think of that, right? Notice, write it in the actual date of the gospel of Judas, 250 years after Jesus died. Yep, way out here, way out there. So guess what it was? It was an early novel made up to say whatever a person wanted to about Jesus. So, nail uh, number one, the New Testament was written during the lifetime of the eyewitnesses to the events while all competing descriptions were written more than a century, and in this case, more than two centuries after the events. Nail number two, here's your blank. As the New Testament manuscripts that have been discovered become more ancient... Right, as you find more uh, older and older and older manuscripts, more and more ancient manuscripts, as the New Testament manuscripts that have been discovered become more ancient, the stories they tell converge into one story. This is important. Pay attention. Those who say that the Gospels aren't accurate claim that in the first generation of the church, lots of diverse stories of the life of Jesus circulated freely. Okay, there was lots of stories that Jesus was, maybe he was kind of an amazing guy, but then it turned into he walks on water, it turned into he moves mountains, it turned into all this this, uh, amazing stuff, right? It it turned him into uh, a superhero. And so all of these were circulating, and then they say that it wasn't until the third and fourth centuries that the church leaders finally sifted through all the stories and chose the four gospels and rejected the competing ones if they didn't like what the competing stories said. Now, the beauty of this discussion is you can test it. Since today, there are tens of thousands of New Testament manuscripts, dating the parchments will show a distinct pattern for the competing theories. So look at the two competing theories. Theory number one, originally, there were many stories about Jesus, and the commonly accepted New Testament texts were only agreed upon more than 150 years after Jesus lived, right? This is the camp that says that there were more than 30 Gospels originally, and then finally, in the second and third centuries, the church said, no, this is the story we're going to tell about Jesus. These are the four Gospels. Uh, Forget the rest of them. Okay, now notice, here's your blanks. If this theory is true, here's what the textual evidence would show. As the manuscripts get older, their message would be more diverse, Right? If in the actual Jesus was really a whole bunch of thir- more than 30 different gospel stories made up, as you get older and older and older manuscripts, you're going to get a more diverse set of stories because you're going to find that gospel and that Gnostic gospel and the gospel of Barnabas and the gospel of Thomas as you get older and older. That's what's going to happen if it's true. So let me show you this graphically because I think that'll help, this will help a lot of people. This is what they said happened. Um, theory number one, right? Many early stories about Jesus. So I put 30 up here to make up uh, the 30 Gospels. Only the four in the middle are what we consider the actual biblical Gospels. But notice, all these stories were uh, circulating and circulating and circulating. And then finally, along around 300, the church got control. And what they said is, no, we're choosing Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And it tells one consistent story about Jesus. And we're going to kibosh all the rest of these, right? So 
the church takes um, uh, 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 takes the uh, unwanted gospels and it suppresses them. Um, the accepted story is the only one that gets propagated, right? There used to be lots of stories. They chop those all off. And now from there forward, you only get the gospels we know of. And many stories were early and one story is only late, okay? Notice that. That's what the archaeology will look like if theory one is true, that there were lots of stories of Jesus and then the church forced the final gospels, okay? Now let's look at theory number two, the classic biblical, scriptural, historic belief in the text, in the scripture. Ready? Here's your blank. There is a single unifying story of the life and teachings of Jesus that was agreed upon by those who were present at the time he lived. Okay, now think about this. These are testable theories, right? So if this theory is true, here's your blanks. Here's what the textual evidence would show. As the manuscripts get older, their message will be more unified, right? As you find older and older manuscripts, if this story is true and there really was one Jesus and the four Gospels are an accurate description of that Jesus, the older you get, the more it's going to come to that one story of Jesus. And so that's this set, right? Theory number two, one early story by the eyewitnesses. The eyewitnesses are all telling the same story about the same Jesus, the same amazing Jesus who was raised from the dead. So here's 32 AD, right, down to around 2 to 300 AD. And notice, the eyewitnesses wrote the Gospels, all right? And then, much, much later, generation later, all of a sudden you start getting these Different stories, new Gospels, Gnostic Gospels, the Gospel of Thomas, Barnabas, the Gospel of Judas, uh, all, all of this stuff. And the, the four, uh, uh, these four survived because the church made sure they survived. But the reality is, is all of these, all of these are new. They're Johnny-come-lately stories. They're not the original eyewitness stories. So notice, you have one story early in the four Gospels, and later you have many fabricated stories. So think about this. The textual science, the archaeology of these two theories is eminently testable. So let's, let's just stop for a minute, right, and look at two things. What does the text actually show? That the older and older and older you get, all you see is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You have to go out to 250 to 300 BC, AD, excuse me, before you start seeing all of the Gnostic Gospels. Remember the Gospel of Judas is a genuine ancient? Well, yeah, sure. I mean, 320 AD is really ancient. But look how long after Jesus, the Gospel of Judas was made up. And so what you see is this unifying story. And now that we have 30,000 ancient manuscripts, they all tell this story. You have to go much, much later until you can start finding this. And let me just give an example. Think about the Holocaust. The Holocaust, let me, uh, let me just give a few of the, of the um, headlines. Um, listen to these uh, recent headlines, right? Now, now that we're two or three generations after the event of the Holocaust, alternate stories are emerging, right? They're myths. They're new stories not made by eyewitnesses, but multi-generations after. So here are some of the recent headlines. Listen to this. Holocaust, it never happened. Iran to hold Holocaust validity conference. <laughs> Holocaust is a myth. Historian disputes the reality of the Holocaust. Holocaust, colon, 
hoax invented by the Jews. So notice, as with all historical events, with the Holocaust, you go back. Guess what you find all the people writing about in the 1950s, when you have literally hundreds of thousands of Holocaust survivors who are alive to tell their actual stories? What is what do all of the newspapers, all of the books written, all of the historians at that time say? They all tell one story, that the Holocaust, as we know it, is real. And it's not now until two or three generations later where all of the eyewitnesses are gone, and now people can start saying whatever they want to, and there's no eyewitness around to say, no, that's not right. I was there. I know the story. You're making this up. So there's a perfect a perfect example in the Holocaust now with divergent Holocaust stories only happening after the eyewitnesses are all gone. Because tragically, as we know, the eyewitnesses tell a horrific story universally. One story early, multiple stories later, exact parallel to the New Testament text. So now that we've looked at how to test the two theories, what's the story of the thousands of manuscripts of the New Testament. As the new discoveries get closer and closer to the time of Christ, dated more and more ancient, the story, my friends, converges to one story. The story of the eyewitnesses told by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is the one story. Today, there are many ancient manuscripts that are said to be authentic, as authentic as the New Testament, but they were all written in the late second century or later. So ironically, the very arguments that critics have used to portray the New Testament as if it's a legend are actually true about all of the other texts and not true about the scripture. Listen, the gospel of Judas is fiction. The gospel of Thomas is fiction. The Da Vinci Code is fiction. Here's the resounding message of the science of archaeology. Only the writers who were separated from the actual events by more than a century tell different stories. The eyewitnesses are all in agreement about what happened. Jesus was crucified and raised three days later from the dead. So tonight, as we ponder the bold reality that the Bible is true, this, is, this should lead every one of us to an inescapable question. So let me ask you last, in the last minute or so tonight. Here's the question. What are you going to do with God's word? Wouldn't you like to base your life on something that isn't a fad that comes and goes? Wouldn't you like to have a foundation that won't collapse in tough times? When your life comes to an end, wouldn't you like to have spent your time and energy on something that will live on long after you're gone? Only truth deserves your life. Listen. Only truth deserves your commitment. Only truth deserves your allegiance. Everything else that you could give your life to will ultimately mock you for having wasted the one life that you have to live. So I ask again, are you, what are you going to do with God's word? So as we close, I want to make sure that we don't uh, keep this just about the facts of archaeology, as remarkable as they are, as you've seen tonight. So let's end with a key concept. Here's your blanks. I'll read it twice because there's four blanks. The great apologetic is when we can defend the accuracy of the truth of God's word and when it transforms us into agents of truth 
who bring hope to a lost world. The great apologetic is when we, we can defend the accuracy of the truth of God's word and when it transforms us into agents of truth who bring hope to a lost world. Intellectual apologetics, listen church, intellectual apologetics alone will fail. The logical defense of faith alone will fail. Why? Because people don't want just truth. Listen, they don't just want truth. They want life. They want joy. They want hope. You see, what they've found is that they live in a world where lots of things are true, but don't matter. They're not looking for theoretical truth. You know what they're looking for? They're looking for living truth. They're not looking for someone who merely tells them that Jesus is the way to abundant life. They're looking for someone who's living an abundant life. They're not looking for someone who can merely tell them that Jesus brings hope and joy and fulfillment. You know what they're looking for? They're looking for someone whose truth has actually made them hopeful and joyful and loving and generous and compassionate and vibrant and alive. Let me ask you, is that your apologetic? The word has so transformed you that they look at the abundant life you're living and say, I got to have what they have. One apologist says it this way. There are essentially five Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the Christian. And most people will never read the first four Gospels. Tonight's lesson shows us the kind of follower that God is looking for. A follower who will pay the price to know his word and who will allow his Holy Spirit to make the word come alive in them so that it gushes out so bountifully that the thirsty, hurting people around them soak it up like a sponge. So let me ask you, has the word of God become so real in your life that you're changing your world? Has the word become so real that others around you ask what gives you so much hope? Has it become so real that the purity of Christ spills out of you? Are you a living word of God to those around you? There is the written word of God, but are you a living word of God to those around you? Are you a living gospel to those you come in contact with? Has God's word become so real that everywhere you go, where you live, where you work, everyone sees the word living in you?